Hilly Andrew is an author, wife, mother, and dog mom from New England. When not busy writing, she can be found passing through flea markets or hand-feeding her crows. Hi, Kelly. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you? Great. Thank you. I want to hear more about your crows. I know. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> yes. Uh, that was another pandemic project. I wanted to get chickens because I wanted to have eggs on hand. You know, we were having the food shortages and the, the grocery stores were, you know, everyone was in a panic. And I was like, this is a really great time to get chickens. And um, my spouse was adamant that we do not have anything else to care for. We, you know, he's like, we got enough. And so I said, well, I need to, I need something to do. So I'm going to start feeding the crows. And I think he thought I was joking. So I started calling them my murder chickens going out there every day with my little, my daughter and feeding them. And at first they were kind of looking at me like, what is this lady doing? And after a while, they would start waiting out there in the morning. And maybe about a year in, we were still doing it. And they started leaving gifts. They started leaving like little like pieces of twine or, you know, we've gone all out at this point. We have a whole tray we put out um, the dog's food, the dog food that he doesn't eat, berries, food that, food that we're getting ready to get rid of, nuts, anything. And they'll gobble it up. And at this point, you know, they follow my kids around the yard. They, it's very strange. Oh, think, that is amazing. I think he wishes that we got chickens at this point because they don't do anything for us, but they're the same amount of work as chickens because they'll scream at the windows if we don't, if we don't feed them. Really? Oh yeah. Maybe you yeah. should adopt magpies next and then he'll warm to that. Yeah. We're just slowly working our way up. Although I do, I'm, I'm very fond of them now. This is our second murder of crows. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm kind of attached to them, but you know, we're those neighbors. I, I would do that just so I could tell people I have a murder of crows. Mm, yes. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. That is like the spookiest, coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. We actually just got a um a wildlife camera, but uh-huh. they're very not trusting and it's bright, bright white. So I've been waiting for the right time to incorporate it because I know they're going to be afraid of it. And I'm hoping it, you know, uploads your camera and I'm hoping I can get cool pictures of them. I'm, oh I'm just going gosh. full on bird lady, just owning it. I love that. Murder chickens. I love it. I love it so much. Actually, if you do um, get pictures, please send them to us. I, I will. really, I, I will. would love, I would love it. I was not expecting to have this conversation right now, but I am here for it. It's always a fun fact to throw out there. So you just get twine. That's your main gift. Yeah, they've left just a couple of things. My my daughter actually has a tackle box um, that she started keeping things in. They've left a piece of shell that they found and we don't live near the beach so I don't know where they found it and bottle cap that they must have was really dirty they must have plucked it out of the ground and then some twine and then some bone but we left that out there just little things I think we only have about four gifts but every once in a while they'll leave a little a little thing in the tray does this inspire anything you write no but I feel that it really matches the aesthetic and so I'm just really leaning into it Absolutely. Point. You never know in the future. Yeah. You might you might end up with some really cool crows in your books. Who knows? Maybe I'll work them in at some point. Okay, so I enjoyed this book so much and I have a few questions for you about it. I was so excited to talk about it. Yeah, Gabby said that she accosted you in a waffle place. <laughs> a waffle hut. I felt no, really bad afterwards. Awesome. I was it like, was awesome. Oh. <laughs> no, that was such a weird, such a weird week because you know, we were so many people were from you know, mutual friends on the internet and you were, I was going into these places and daring people down. And I was like, I'm being so weird right now, but I know I know this person. So <laughs> it was just, you no, know, it was really cool to, uh, 
run into you there. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> I felt funny afterwards. And I was like, Yelfest is a crazy place. <laughs> for sure. All right. So I've been, I've been thinking about your characters for a long time after I finished this book. And one of the things I was thinking about is Lane and how much I love her vulnerability and how she acknowledges that even as she kind of pushes to be stronger in her world um, and to prove herself. And I think it takes a lot of talent as a writer to write a character that's so well-balanced and so relatable. And so I was wondering, did you find her challenging to write? Um, or were there kind of layers of her that you kept on unwrapping as you revised? Oh, I love that question. I, you know, I think one of the things I really knew I wanted to do when I was writing Lane was I wanted her to be kind of the antithesis of the chosen one stereotype or, or character type. Um, because, you know, clearly she wasn't chosen. There's this priory of individuals who were chosen and are failing. There was no consideration given to her to be the one who could carry this burden that she ends up carrying. And that really shaped how her character was built. I didn't want her to be this like gung-ho, like I'm, I'm going after this, I'm doing it. She just was sort of, she just, she just trying to pass her classes and get to the end of the year. And I think that was, you know, what a lot of people are doing in real life. You're just trying to, you know, you know, get the degree, do you do a good job, make it from Monday to Friday. And um, she sort of stumbled into this. And I wanted to make that feel organic without making her feel like the like the pick me girl of, oh, no, I'm the opposite of the opposite of everybody else. You know, you didn't want to make her too stereotypical of, no, I'm I'm not what all these other characters are. So I just, you know, it did take a lot of sort of finagling through drafts to get her to feel real and not like, oh, here's this character and there are the recognizable traits that she has. But no, I did want to make her someone who was not the not the person you would expect to save the day. And I think one of the things that that really drew me to her was how much she's just trying to be normal. She's just trying to do the things that she needs to do to get by. So what you said about, you know, just trying to survive the week. And that that really feels very relatable. I'm just like, I just I just want to be normally getting through this week and not have to deal with anything else. And then all of these crazy things are happening around her. And her coursework is not normal stuff. And she's having to deal with all of these other challenges on top of it. So yeah, and I don't know, you know, college itself is such a big change for anyone who leaves home and goes to this new place. And I just remember my experience in college, there were people joining sports and, you know, groups and pledging to places and taking on all these extracurriculars. And I was there like, okay, this is my coursework. And this is what I can do. And I have no bandwidth for anything else. And obviously, the extracurriculars in Lane's world are a little less track and field and a little more, you know, depth of hell. But, it, you know, the fantastical definitely is meant to be, you know, a manifestation of what it really looks like when you're trying to, you know, balance all of this, these pressures and, and be seen as successful and meet these bars that have been set for you. And I do think that's done really well in the book because even when you start out and she's going off to college and she's doing all of these things, it feels very rooted in the real world. And so all of the sort of paranormal bits that come in feel like they could be happening if you're looking in the right places. And that's the that's the bit that really gets me because I feel like I could fall into this and this could be I could go out my front door. This could be a thing. This could be my neighbor or this could be me. And and, and I love that about the story. Well, thank you. I'm glad it came across. So. I want to talk about Colton a little bit as well, who yeah. I loved. And for me, he was just an incredible character because he's so conflicted with so many secrets. And he's, he was one of my favorites to read because he just, he had so much of an internal battle that was kind of raging just below the surface. 
while he was still trying to keep it together on the outside. And of course, we get to see into his head. So we know just how much he's struggling. But what I loved was that the strength of his character arc is kind of that he he slowly has to learn to lean into his vulnerability. Whereas Lane, on the other hand, Kaiser trying to break out of that in her journey. So as a reader, I felt like I knew him right away because his wounds were very clear. And it got me thinking about the importance of backstory and how it can be so powerful to get through, to, to get the threads right. Uh, so that the character motivations really add to the tension and the stakes of the story. Um, so can you give us a little bit of insight into your character building process? Oh, man. So for Lane and Colton, I wrote one of the final scenes with them first without knowing who they were, what their backstories were, who they were to each other. And it's a scene that has since been cut mostly. But I kind of I had this vision of them in my head. And I knew what their motives in that moment were. And I sort of mapped backwards from that to figure out well, why is he doing this and what would make someone act this way and what would make, and it was almost like a choose your own, you know, you know, the goosebumps, choose your own adventure where you have three options. It was like the backwards of that. Like I would go, okay, well, he did this and I want him to do this in a story. And there are three reasons a person would make that decision which decision do I like best and sort of shaped, you know, played with him a little bit and with Lane until their character profiles became clear. But I also, I have a degree in uh, social work. And so I have taken a lot of sociology courses and um, a lot of counseling courses. And I think just learning the framework of the way, you know, complex trauma can rewire your brain, shape the way you think and the way you interact with the world, you know, both Lane and both Lane and Colton and all of the characters at this school are characters who've been through some sort of early childhood trauma and surrounding death and loss. And I think it impacts the way all of them engage with the world around them. And so sort of mapping it that way really help at least tinkering. The tinkering for me is the fun part. I like getting them to look on page how they look in my head. And that is satisfying when you finally can pin to the page and feel like it's where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, I just, um, to me, it sounded almost like you reverse engineer your, your story. Then you start yeah. out with some big moments. Um, do you keep in mind like set pieces, like different places? Like when you're making up a story, do you think about like, I want this big, cool, like setting in a spot. Do you, do you think about it that way as well? That's a tough one to answer because, you know, there, there's fantasy and I always read, I read a lot, you know, and I'm always like, wow, they built this whole world and, and this is amazing. And where do they come up with this? And meanwhile, mine is my set is Boston and the surrounding suburbs of Boston. And so I, I had a very clear idea in my head of the playing field and, mm -hmm how it was feeding into their story, you know, Boston in the fall, very aesthetic, very spooky. And, you know, how are we going to use the environment and the set to enhance the tension and the stakes? So yeah, there's definitely, I wanted to give it this feeling where like Boston itself or the, the season itself was a sort of menacing character in the background, mm. but I, it, it helped that there was already such a clear visual. I didn't have to build it and sell it to readers. People were like, oh yeah, I know about, even if you haven't been there, you've seen Boston in a movie, you see, you know, you know, what it looks like. So I, it was easier for me, I think. I had a leg up with being able to just sort of evoke the images I wanted to with little, this is cobbled streets, you know, Beacon Hill. And I love that. I think your prose does such a good job of that as well, though. Like all of your word choices evoke a lot of emotion without having to be kind of overly descriptive. And it's very powerful. So, you know, I would read some of the 
the interactions. And then in between, there should be a sentence about something that's kind of happening in passing as maybe Lane's walking along. And the description of the thing that she notices adds so much atmosphere. So I think whether or not it's something that's familiar, it's it still feels very much because I've never been to Boston. And I'm terrible at knowing when I watch movies with a set. <laughs> so, but, but I got a very good sense of like the spooky vibe. And I felt like I was kind of inside of the characters as they were experiencing their world. And more so what was interesting to me was that we have these different characters in the same places experiencing their environments differently because obviously they're different people, but that we still kind of get that same feeling of where they are. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that, you know, the prose aspect, you know, I like tinkering, tinkering with the words, but I also had this like my dad's voice in my head because I talk a lot. I've always talked a lot. And when I was growing up, he used to say to me, say it with less, say it with less, and which is so terrible. He's going to say, why did you tell that story? But I think, you know, I would be going on and on and on and he'd be trying to get out the door and he'd be like, all right, say it, but say it with less. And so when I started writing, I had that in my head. I was like, okay, how do I say what I want to say with less? And then it became sort of like a fun game to like, how can I get the most emotion out of the, the least amount of words? And that's what I'm thinking about when I'm writing. And I, I think it translated in the sense that um, you know, I have some turns of phrase that I'm really proud of in that story. But, you know, I know for some people, they read it and they're like, what is this? is weird. <laughs> this prose is strange. <laughs> but it was a very fun challenge for myself. I had a good time with it. I wonder if that's a dad thing, because my dad, he wanted me to summarize what I was saying. and I'm terrible at it. I just can't do it. And I actually remember him making me write him like book reports because I, I, I was just I would just read all the time. But he was like, you need to write me a book report about it. But it needs to be like it can't be longer than this. And it was a summary thing. And I'm just curious, I'm like, is that a dad thing? I don't get it. <laughs> I, maybe it's a dad to book nerds thing because that yeah. was often mine. It was like, here's this book I read. Here's the show I watched. Let me tell you everything about it. And he was like, no. I, and I and here we are it saying it with less. It works. We should say thank you to them, I suppose. <laughs> it's it's good practice for writers, I would say. Gabby, what were you going to say? I was going to say it's good practice for writers. So I said oh, it. <laughs> great. Perfect. So, but I would like love to know more about your story inspiration. So, I mean, I know kind of we, we write our stories, we put them out into the world and then they don't belong to us anymore. But can you tell us a bit more about your inspiration behind The Whispering Dark? And also, if there's anything that you wish people would take away from it, what, what would that be? Oh, man. The first part of that question is easy. I'll have to think about the second part of that question. You know, I pulled inspiration for this one for a lot of places. I, I know often say when people ask that, like, this was my pandemic project, you know, I, my, my crows, my book, um, my little pandemic projects that kept me rooted. And when I sat down to write this book, I was kind of frustrated with the industry. And I was like, you know, I'm not getting anywhere with the stories I'm writing. I'm just going to sit down and pull all the things that I'm interested in and that I like and put it into a story and see what happens. So it's kind of a weird mix of ideas, but Colton's story came from, and I told this story a, a, a few times, but when my parents were downsizing, they had me go through their attic and take out everything that was mine. One of the things was a box of journals and it was this little butterfly shaped journal. And in it, I wrote, it was nine. That was the date. I was nine years old. I was writing all these little gel pens. Remember the gel pens of like 
that always dried up and you have to change the color. And most of it was like, here's my day. You know, I drew with chalk out with my neighbor and blah, blah, blah. Um, But there were these several entries about a boy that I wrote about playing with who did not live in my neighborhood, who I was like, mom, who's this? And they read through it and they were like, no, we don't know anybody by this name. Nobody remembered him. Nobody knew him. And they were like, you must have had an imaginary friend. You were a weird kid. But then, you know, because I write, I started to be like, oh my gosh, what if I knew a ghost? And then, you know, just normal things, normal conclusions to draw. So I started to wonder, you know, like what that story would look like, you know, if there's someone who had a ghost friend when she was young, like how would that progress? There's plenty of horror movies about that, but because I am a romantic, I obviously came up with a slightly different version of the story. It's funny because my little ode to that is that in the journal, I inexplicably wrote, oh, he's here from Chicago. So that's why they go to Chicago in the story. So, you know, I'm just like, why not? That's where like the idea for the ghost aspect of it came in. And then the Priory aspect came in because I wanted to tell a story about I um, grew up very religious and left the faith, um, was sent to a very private Christian school when I was young, and um, it was a lot of evangelicalism. And I noticed that and one of the reasons I left was because I felt that some of the adults pushing this faith onto people were latching onto teens that were hurting in some way, um, some people who had lost friends, lost family and people who had illness and being like the way the way to healing is this way to eternal life and we can show you how to be saved and you can save everyone and in that time period i was told you know oh you put god in a box by not believing he can cure you of your deafness and it was very icky to me and i thought like wow what power do these people wield that they can convince all of these young people who are hurting to throw themselves at in pursuit of something they can't see or touch. And to me, it just seemed like an abuse of power and manipulation. And I really wanted to write a a story of the inverse of that. Like nobody would okay it if it was walking into hell. And so these students in the Priory are sort of being, you know, pressured, join me on this search for eternal life. And that's how you'll say the people in your life who are hurting, who are sick, or how you'll avoid death altogether. And I think the message is the same but it's the dark academia version versus the religious version. And I wanted to sort of play with that because it's been in my head for a long time, So, which was a longer answer than you probably wanted. But I guess the takeaway would be that. I know it's very subtle. It's not very obvious criticism of religion, but if anyone takes anything away, I hope it would be that there are better ways to deal with loss than, than um, this, you know, a pursuit of, of something that could be damaging to you. I love that. Thank you for sharing. That feels like it comes all, all of it from a very kind of um, experiential place. Sure. And and you said earlier that was probably a longer answer than we wanted, which no, we love long answers. We do. So. We do. <laughs> We're derailing there. I did not learn to summarize, by the way. So <laughs> I like long answers. Are you, are you an overwriter or an underwriter? Now that we're talking about the long and the short of things. Oh man. I am an overwriter for sure. I have my, I call my elephant graveyard and I, all of the things that I cut and put into another document. And at the end of the whispering dark, by the time I handed it in and it was like, done, go elephant graveyard document was as long as the book. Oh my gosh. 
That's very relatable. I think we're all three of us overwriters. So <laughs> I have been an overwriter and I've also been an underwriter. Like I um, just fast drafted something and it it was so freeing to do that. But then I also have a book that's like really, really long. But sometimes you have to write like the the, the long version to figure out, you know, what the story mm-hmm. is and then condense it down to the story you want to tell other people. Yeah. Yes. So you have another project, right? Yes. Right? Yes. My sophomore novel comes out next spring. So, oh my gosh. So, how has that been in terms of um, your elephant graveyard, in terms of your process, all of the things? It's been daunting. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I have never, it's been the first time I've ever had to write a book with the voices of um, readers in my head. And, you know, there's this pressure, you know, there were people who didn't like The Whispering Dark and that's cool, but I'm kind of like, I need to prove you wrong with the second one to show you that you could like stuff I write, which obviously, you know, it doesn't matter. People, people will like what something they won't like others, but then there's also the voice that's like, and then you're going to let everyone down like the first one. So you had the voice in your head, you know, I've never had that. It's always been me at my kitchen table, just daydreaming onto the page. And now I'm like, you know you've got all this outside noise. So daunting, but it's been a lot of fun. I am very passionate about the second book. It takes place in the same universe. Colton and Lane are in it. And so it's been really fun to do a continuation of the world I built in the first book and the dark horses at play in the first book and sort of expand them in the second one. That is awesome. I I do want to ask Kind of how, like, what are your coping skills for um, dealing with those doubts and the extra voices? Well, that's a good one. I honestly, it's, you know, I have a good group of critique partners and I kind of have to pull myself back and say, I'm writing this because I love it. I love this story. And this is something that I'm passionate about. And And I know that I have a group of friends who are excited to read it. And at the end of the day, I'm I write it for me. And I'll write it for them. And then it'll go out into the world and people will either like it or not, you know, and you're sort of having that dialogue with yourself that, you know, you're just creating something to the best of your ability and what will be, will be. Yeah, I think it, I think it is so hard to because other people would write it differently and we're going to write it the way we're going to write it. And our story is our story. And sometimes people might not jive with it. And that's, that's their business, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So hard though. Okay. So I have to say that I don't think we can get through this interview without mentioning Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No. I love it. One of the things I love about your account is all the Buffy dub. So um, I, as a kid, I watched Buffy religiously in the 90s. And I just remember thinking like Faith for me was like the absolute coolest. And I just, I wanted to be just like her. So who is your ride or die character? And would you say that any of them inspire your stories? Ride or die from Buffy? Man, oh, that's tough. I feel like Buffy is the obvious answer here, but I really love Spike. I really love his, his origin story. I love his pain. I love the sacrifice that he goes through. And I feel like he inspires a lot because he's an imperfect character and he's a, he's, out to protect himself, which I feel like is honest. People hate when I say this because I'm a big, if you follow my account, I'm a big Spuffy shipper. I love Buffy and Spike as a pairing, <laughs> but I describe tragically Lane and Colton as a Riley and Buffy 
shipping because you know there's the whole TA teacher assistant aspect and so I feel like it's more in line with the with that which is you know clearly not my end game for Buffy but it worked in this scenario so but yeah no I feel like Spike probably my favorite my favorite Buffy did you ever write any fan fiction I did although not of Buffy the Vampire Slayer my first fan fiction was Gilmore Girls oh I loved it because I was very unhappy with the way Jess and Rory left things. Mm. Very unhappy. As an adult, I am fully team uh, Rory and Logan. Like I've come <laughs> around. But when it happened, my heart was broken. It was shattered. I didn't want to go to school the next day. I was like, I can't go on. <laughs> I sat down and wrote an angry, angry revision of how that ended. So what age um, then did you like, did you really start writing? Very early. So um, I don't know when I started, when I, I probably started writing, writing, I declared my intent to be published when I was in seventh grade. And I, I sat down and told my teacher, I was like, I'm going to stay in at lunch, here at lunch, I need to work on my novel. So I remember doing that. She was like, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've always been writing. I lost my hearing when I was four and I wasn't, I was in full silence until I was nine. And so that's a lot of time to, that's when a lot of kids are forming social bubbles outside of like the play dates their parents set up for them. And I could hear one-on-one with lip reading, not hear or comprehend one-on-one with lip reading. But once it got into a group, I was like, so, you know, as people started to buddy off in groups, I was more solitary and I started writing a lot and um, none of it was very good but I knew I wanted to write stories pretty early because that was such an escape for me. So it's been a a long time, a long time of writing nonsense. And now your second book is about to come out. I know. (laughs) Pretty wild. You know, very very happy to be here. (laughs) And okay. So what is the second book called? It's called your blood, my bones, your blood, my bones. Mm -hmm. Such a good title. I love it. So I'm very excited. I will admit that wasn't my working title. My working title was not great. I'm not great with titles. And they were like, we have something just a little bit more exciting to pitch you. And I was like, yes, yes, it's perfect. Let's go with that. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't, I didn't realize that you are like such a Buffy fan. I feel like that is so cool. I love that. I am. I, I am. I do my annual rewatch much to my spouse. Can't stand it. He doesn't like it. He thinks it's corny. <laughs> So he's, he's wrong. And honestly, like if he had it together, y'all would have chickens instead of crows. Yeah. So you can see there's a a trend of wrong opinions here. Yeah. One day I'm working on it. One day I'll get him on the Buffy train. I I think you will. And honestly, you should just be making a list of his wrongs at this point. And then you can just give him (laughs) the receipts later. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Okay. If you could step into another realm of your own making, how would it be different to our worlds and how would it be the same? Oh man, you're hitting me with hard questions here. The how, if I could step into another realm, like the existing literary realm or just whatever realm I wanted. Uh, well, I was going to say one of your own making, but let's hmm. go with whatever, whatever realm you want. Making. You know, I just do not know. That's such a tough question. I think, you know, I like, I like the realm I'm living in. But if if I had to go to another world, it probably wouldn't be of my own making. It would probably be, oh man, 
I feel like this is such a cliche answer, but it would probably be Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings. I wouldn't last very long, but I would like to go just spend my remaining years in the Shire. With Aragorn. With a what? With Aragorn, <laughs> she said. <laughs> in the Shire? Yes. I, yeah. Well, he would have to move to the Shire, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. That's all yeah. I want. Just, it's just like, I'm going to the little sign that Bilbo puts out in his house and no admitted except on party business. That's what I want. Just do not disturb some scones, some tea. I feel okay. that so hard. <laughs> well, let me know when you go. I, I might join you. <laughs> I, I will let you know. We can all go. We can live in our own separate boroughs. Oh, that sounds so nice. Yeah. I, um, I am very into Hobbit core right now. It's perfect. It is. I want to live just in, in a little hut in the earth and I'll emerge every so often with the finished book and then I'll go back in. They also have a lot of good snacks in that book. They do. They do. This podcast is mostly snacks. It is. That's fabulous. Yeah. We haven't gotten to that (laughs) part yet, but we will. We, we had our season finale for season one and the last 20 minutes of that episode were just Gabby and I talking about snacks. As that was it. Yeah. As you should. I support it. I We're all with the snacks around here. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old and my entire day from sunup to sundown is about snacks. Sounds about right. You know, if you were actually hanging out with us physically, it would be the same. <laughs> but we would provide the snacks yeah we would I provide say, snacks. i never go anywhere without snacks so i'd be there with my bags of snacks this is one of the things that was really funny to me at yale fest um i made friends with a couple of people in a line who would just like i just overheard them talking about snacks and i was like oh you guys brought your snacks too and we just all had these bags of snacks as we were walking around <laughs> it's the right it's really funny it is nobody wants to be out and about and hungry You know, I feel like there's something very cute about that when you think about just humans. Like, oh, they just like to have little bits of snacks with them. Like, that is extremely cute, I think. It is. You know, and the fact that we, like, adopt different animals from different species and they become our family. Like, that's extremely cute. I think so. I think that's some points in our favor. We don't have a lot, so we'll take them. That's that's true. That's true. <laughs> and you have a horde of murder chickens, which is spooky and cute. That's that's what they, they also love their snacks. So you are a perfect fit for this podcast, Kelly. <laughs> awesome. I love it. I was going to ask you a little bit more about your sophomore novel, but we've talked about that one. We could talk more about like dark themes. Mm, yes what would you say is your biggest inspiration the whispering dark is is very dark in a good way we like dark things here but what are like what are who are some of your favorite authors oh man and shows too that's tough i love the raven boys which i feel like is the inspiration there is you know the i love the dark academia and the um i think what draws me to that story is I like the obsessive pursuit of answers. I love when characters get hyper fixated on things and like, you know, well, I know you asked for books, but like, this is the show, but you know, house, I love how Dr. House will become hyper fixated on figuring out what the problem is and what the solution is, no matter who he alienates, no matter how he offends. And I think those characters are so one, such an integral part of dark academia, and two, 
fascinating. Even, you know, Wednesday Adams. Did you guys see that new Wednesday Adams? The whole oh, yeah. premise is I was obsessed with friend. She's going to be alone by the end because, you know, you know, pursuit of knowledge at whatever the cost leaves you friendless. And mm-hmm. I think that I just, I love those stories of people who are so, you know, focused on things. And um, that's where a lot of the inspiration came from. Obviously, you know, the mysterious, the mysterious apostle in the whispering dark is so single-mindedly focused on mm. getting what he wants that he loses sight of what he lost yeah and um so he's that character in the story but um I just think so I think I draw I drew inspiration from a lot of those sort of obsessive characters and I think that you know that they're in Raven Boys they're all obsessing over finding the tomb I can't remember the name of the tomb but they're obsessed with, obsessed with finding it and they have they have these reasons for it, and it's just so fascinating to me. I love it. Do you read any Dan Brown? Yes. Okay, because when I was reading with the Apostle, I was thinking, I, like my brain just kept going to kind of tying in kind of some of the, the Dan Brown stories, and I just wondered if that was something that you drew from I, as well. I what I love about Dan Brown is how if you didn't Google and fact check what he's saying, it sounds true. Like the way he writes it, you're like, this is fact, right? And then you look it up, you're like, no. But it, it has just enough basis, in fact, yeah, to sound real. And I wanted my fantasy to sound like that. And I did the same thing in Your Blood, My Bones, which has a little more of a fantasy element, but it's all still rooted in lore mm-hmm. that you can look up and find. And the basis of it is true. It's got enough of a nugget that's real, but then it spins off into, you know, something totally fictional. Um, so I love contemporary fantasy that feels like fact i think you did an amazing job of that and um i did i actually i did one of the very first master classes i ever did was a dan brown master class and he talked about like working on the basis of fact and how sometimes people would really go and look these things up and they would go to places that he would write into his stories and then write to him and be like well you got this wrong <laughs> and He'd go, yeah, no, I did that on purpose. It's not supposed to be accurate. It's a fiction. It's a fiction. But that means, you know, that means he did his job well. People are buying it, you know? Yeah. That's so cool. It's just, yeah. He's just, he's fantastic. And um, just a very, very interesting perspective on story. I love that. I didn't know that. But it makes sense because I remember reading The Da Vinci Code when I was younger. And I thought, 100%, this is true. And my dad was like, no. Get on the internet. Look it up. It's not true. You need to do some more background research. And summarize it. Yeah. And then summarize it. Condense it. Say it with less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Gabby, do you have other burning questions or should we jump into Story Beast? Let's jump into Story Beast. I'm going to read your Beast. Okay. And then we'll have a chat about it. All right. Let's go. Okay. So you said, my Story Beast would take the form of a snake. A snake sheds its skin as it grows, leaving behind something equally lovely but no longer needed. And that's how I feel about my craft with each subsequent story I tell. It also spends plenty of time basking in the sun. And I feel that the most critical part of storytelling, at least for me, is letting things lie and taking the time to dream. I feel like I cheated a little with that one because I thought for days about this answer. And I was like, I need to be a beast. And I was like, all I kept thinking of was like a snake in the sun. A, a nice, like a nice iridescent snake, you know. But that's not cheating. Why is that's that cheating? cheating at all? Well, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. You know, it, I felt like I had it in a little box. Like snake is not a beast. It's just an animal. But I was like, this is my answer, and I'm sticking to it. So, 
Oh no, I love that. I I love what you said. We um we had another one. Uh, Jakarta, hers was a, a homing pigeon. Oh, I love mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So I mean, I I love you know the mythical or the real world ones. Um, I love what you said about you know shutting your skin and you know also just kind of like taking time you know with the story. I I feel like that is so important. Yeah, for me the the reasoning behind people's story beast is always what draws me in. So. Mm-hmm. It could be like a worm. <laughs> and I'd just be like, why the worm? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> just what's the reason, right? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I went to, oh man, years ago, I went to, you know, Sabata here. Mm-hmm. Yes. I went to see her speak in um, uh, um, An Unlikely Story in Massachusetts, which is just one of my favorite bookstores. And, you know, she had a lot of wisdom, as you might expect. But one of the things she was talking about was her mother, I was watching her children so that she could write. But she had been stuck in a plot point. So she'd been sitting there and kind of like staring out the window. And her mom was like, you know, write the you know, write the story or something. And um her, I think it was her father, she said in this in this anecdote, who said, like, let her dream. The most important part of the writing is dreaming. And so that she passed that along to that room full. And I just carried that with me as like, you know, it is such an important she, you know, you, it seems so obvious, but then at the same time, I feel like there's this pressure that we put on ourselves, or at least I put on myself to just have this output and just be writing and putting words down on paper when half of the story or most of the story, I don't know what the numbers are. Most of the story for me is born through dreaming and just thinking and letting it, letting it lie. And so when I was asked the story beast question, I was thinking about, you know, I used to go on these long runs in the woods behind my college campus. And when the weather would start to get warm, water snakes would come out and sun themselves on the path. And they'd just be sleeping there, just resting in the sun. And I don't know, I was just like that, you know, just letting it, letting it lie and letting your story, you know, not moving so fast, just letting it kind of take, take root in your head. I just, I love that. And I'm, I'm so happy that you, that you said that. Cause I think, um, I think that we could all use more of that. Cause I know I forget about that part. There's this, there's this like kind of natural tension. I feel like between like the dreamer and like the piece of like the production piece. And, um, you know, feeling like you have to be on um, on a deadline, meet a certain goal, whatever it is. You know, I think that some beautiful things can be born out of that tension, but also, um, you know, just getting caught up in the hustle. You know, it's important not to forget the dreamer piece. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's such a critical part. It's where the stories are born, you know, in your mm-hmm. head. And it's OK for them to, to live in your head for a while until you're ready to write them down and let them sort of not to mix metaphors, but sort of be on the back burner simmering. So, mm-hmm. well, I love your snake. Should I ask the last final, very important, the most important question? Most yes. important question. Is it about snacks? It is. Yes. <laughs> Kelly, good guess. <laughs> Kelly, what is your favorite snack? <laughs> oh. <laughs> You can you can say many putting me on the spot as a snacker. I have to divide it into two because this is not an easy answer. I need sweet and savory, right? Perfect. Yes. Okay. So for sweet, it's Dunkaroos. 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 When first of all, when I thought they were going like they were getting rid of Dunkaroos in college, I went to like Big Y or something and bought them in like in bulk. And so my room was the Dunkaroos room at college. Like if you wanted Dunkaroos, (laughs) I would visit Kelly. Okay, explain to me what Dunkaroos are, though. I don't, I don't know them. So it's like this, it's this, it's it's disgusting. It's 
this like little tray of like kind of chocolatey cookies with either chocolate cake frosting or funfetti cake frosting and you dip them and eat them it's a little like little like port for the frosting <laughs> um but it's my weak spot and I recently found them. I thought that they were like gone forever and I found them and I bought them and now I have them in my kitchen and it's been great. Every time I sit down to write, I'm like, Dunkaroos. <laughs> I love it. Discovery. So, um, okay, hold on. Is there like a, I'm trying to understand the snack. Gabby is a scientist. So, okay. And she needs to know. Okay. I mean, I just want to know how to eat it. So there's like, there's like, a kind of there's a frosting that you dip the cookie into or it comes with the frosting and there's like a separate dip or so have you seen those like little plastic containers that's like pretzels and cheese yes it looks like that except it's blue and okay. there's little coin shaped cookies that are probably the size of a dime maybe maybe a little bigger inside of the plate like little snack place and then there's a little well on the end instead of cheese it's chocolate or funfetti Okay. Vanilla, vanilla with rainbow sprinkles. Oh, oh look, look at that. Yes, right there. I'm holding okay, it so up. <laughs> that looks really fun and very sweet. <laughs> I will yes. say, tragically, I don't know if they've changed their menu or I'm just an adult now, but they don't taste as good as I remember. And I'm really mm. upset about it, but I'm not letting it stop me. I have one every single time I start to write. I'm like, it's my Dunkaroo time. I love I that. Them. Savory snacks, though, is chips and dip. Like with what a kind spicy of dip. What kind of a bean, a spicy bean dip that spicy, I can get at my local. Okay. Only, I can only get at the local mart in my town, and I send my spouse out to get it from them all the time. I'm like, can you go get me? I need to work. Can you get the three bean dip? <laughs> Specifically that one. <laughs> so what you're saying is you can never move. I can never move. I don't think I'll ever find anywhere else. It's if they sell it in their deli section, and I think they know they must hate when they see him coming because he comes in every few days and has to get a jug of it, and I just sit here like. Eating it by the spoonful. Well, actually, they must love him because they know that they're about to make a good sale. Yeah. So yeah. he's dependable. True. Yes, that's true. Also, also, Kelly, from when I pulled up the pictures of the Dunkaroos, I just want you to know that there's a Dunkaroos sweatshirt that came up. And I feel like you should get one. <laughs> I'm going to be having one on the way to my house within within the day. You know that. I, oh my I, gosh. I'm pretty sure you'd need it. I need it. It's going to happen. Thank you. You changed my life. It's okay. That's what we aim to do here at Story Beast, really. <laughs> Too funny. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm I'm really sad I can't have that bean dip because um, it sounds fantastic. It, it is does. great. It is great. And I feel like it's my healthiest my healthiest snack because it's got, got a whole assortment of, like, beans and corn in it. And so I feel like, look, I'm getting balanced. Like, yeah. That's a salad. Pretty tough. The salad. It it's, it's the closest thing to a salad I will eat. No, it's a salad, Kelly. Perfect. And, and like it's you're eating it with potatoes, which is a vegetable. Right. So, exactly. I mean, Done. You can't go wrong. <laughs> Perfect. Well balanced. Well balanced meal. <laughs> Bean dip and dunkaroos. I did. Um, you hold up your phone, Courtney, and then it made me remember that I, I was in a, a toy store the other day, um, and I came across this Buffy the Vampire Slayer kids book. So I took a photo of it because I was like, I have to show you this when we interview you in case you need it. Uh, oh, it's like goodness. a pop-up book for kids. It's amazing. I need to get that for my daughter because she wants to watch Buffy in the worst way. And I'm like, no, I, I will send you this picture. Yes, um, please. And then I'm sure you can find it where you are. 
Yeah. I'm just coming out of this with new sweatshirt, <laughs> new books to read. This is fabulous. We, we live to serve. <laughs> so many discoveries. Oh, well, this has been fabulous. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for your new book to come out. Yeah, Me too. thank you. Do you have a date? Spring 2024 for now. Okay. I'm waiting Spring for the official date. Okay. But okay. hopefully, I mean, we'll see. The last, without giving too much away, the very final scene takes place on the first day of summer. So, and mm. I think maybe, so maybe late spring, but I don't mm-hmm. know. We'll see what they, let's mm-hmm. see what date. I, I'm a mood reader. So I like to be a mood writer as well. Ha-ha. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for, you know, inviting me on this. It's been awesome. Yes. Thank you and, for joining us. Yes, for real. I love talking about this stuff and Buffy and snacks. <laughs> so 10 out of 10. Perfect. <laughs>